Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Jamie Beaton is a very clever Kiwi. He's a remarkably accomplished educator who is both experienced at remarkable educational enterprises and helping others to gain access to that. Jamie graduated from Harvard Magna Cum Laude in 2016, two years ahead of schedule. He's got a double degree in applied mathematics and economics. He's been to Stanford Graduate School of Business. He started his own companies, helping people gain access to Ivy League and Russell Group schools. He's even started an online school, a global online school. I'm so excited we're getting to talk with Jamie Beaton today. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, Go to a schoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you. How is the uh, People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you this morning? Uh, look, you know, as, as I was wandering down to get my coffee, I was accosted by a mm. rather strident piece of tofu that called me to account for my choice of uh, my choice of conventional milk in my flat white this morning. And so I'm educating myself as as we're talking right now on, on what is the correct way forward. Anything else that Tofu was outraged by this morning? I don't know, my choice of jacket? Possibly, who knows? Anyway, enough of this nonsense. I'm really excited to get to our guest here on Series 10 of The Game Changers. Jamie, I'm going to launch into the very first question, uh, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in New Zealand, and um, I would say my biggest inspiration was my mother. Uh, growing up, I had a law degree, MBA degree, commerce degree, and chartered accounting qualification all in my bedroom as I woke up every morning. And she really instilled within me this belief that education was the most powerful way to um, you know, build a career of impact and um, empower yourself. So from a young age, I really loved academics. And I guess from the age of about 10 onwards, I viewed it as almost like a sport in which I, you know, took it pretty seriously and, you know, aspired to some, um, you know, strong achievement and challenging myself. Now, my aspiration was to stay with New Zealand, probably doing medicine or law up until the age of about 14. And then I bumped into this fellow who was the ducks of my high school. He got into Yale. His name is Ben Kornfeld. And he told me I should think about applying overseas. So I spent the next four years in high school uh, really preparing for these overseas universities and then applied to them and uh, applied to a wide variety of US, UK, Middle East, et cetera. And then once I got into them all, I really saw an opportunity to impart some of the wisdom and insights I had from my own experience and mistakes too, to you know, a new generation of students that could be applying overseas. 
So um, that really, I guess, was foundational for me. And I've you know, had a great time studying at Harvard, Stanford. And I'm actually graduating from Oxford shortly in a PhD program. And those experiences have really helped me, I guess, take Crimson to the next level. I'm um, having gone through many of these institutions, both undergrad and postgrad. So that kind of gives you a flavor for sort of my DNA. I'm, I'm a, I would say a lifelong learner and I'm very passionate about the kind of opportunities these institutions bring to families around the world. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the work that you're currently doing in, in that kind of online space in a number of different uh, guises. I just want to, I still want to stay in this space of, of this journey that you've just shared with us. And thank you very much for um, giving us that little bit of an insight about mum and her, her, her inspiring you uh, along, that, along that journey. What is it in particular, though, about learning and always wanting to learn? Because you just mentioned the phrase lifelong learner that really appeals to you? I think uh, fundamentally, learning does a number of things. First up, it opens up all kinds of opportunities, career-wise, uh, you know, economically, many different industries you can never be a part of had you not embarked on you know, this trajectory. So the first thing is the clear, tangible skills I think is really interesting. Secondly, I think learning helps you with self-awareness, self-reflection. It makes you, uh, I guess, a student of yourself in many ways as you reflect on English literature or you know, you debate in, the, in an economics class about where you stand on particular issues, you know, that, that helps to give you a better sense of, you know, where you're currently at. Um, and then I think the third area is really around, you know, intellectual personal growth, what we call, I guess, leveling up. And this idea that, you know, if you aren't using your brain, it'll probably atrophy a little bit. And, you know, over time, you'll be really stuck in your ways and you will actually uh, find it hard to get back onto the learning train. And some of the most you know, innovative people I've met in their 70s or 80s are really voracious learners who've kept learning throughout the, you know, their entire life and leveling up. And I guess the final point I'd make on that is I think the pace of innovation seems to really be accelerating. So you, know, you probably do need to be willing to keep learning to stay on top of these trends because you probably can bet that the skills you're using now are going are to change. Has there been a time through your learning journey where you've come across knowledge or skills or information that has really challenged you and pushed you out of your comfort zone? I would say there's been a lot. I mean, a lot of the concepts I've, I've come, come across and tackled uh, have been challenging to, to learn. So I'll give you kind of, I'll give you probably two examples that come to mind. Um, the first would be a statistics class that I took in my um, master's program at Harvard from this guy called Professor Blitzstein. And uh, this class, unlike a lot of stats classes I've taken before, uh, was not very practical. It was very theoretical, very proof-based. And it was really focusing on deriving many of the, I guess, theorems that you know, are widely used in statistics, uh, some of the you know, foundations behind these distributions, et cetera. And um, the class was sufficiently abstract that it was very challenging to build any kind of intuition for. And so uh, you know, to, to kind of get your head around them, it required tons of practice and really, I guess, thinking through these problems through a new lens. So that was a very difficult academic experience, to be honest. And um, uh, I really enjoyed the challenge. I went through it with a um, friend of mine, David, who now is our COO at Crimson. And we really built a strong friendship because of the pain of that one. The second one that I'd speak to is recently in my PhD, I, I uh, ran a randomized control trial inside Crimson, looking at the impact of personality and psychometrics on the relation between students and tutors. And the experience of having to design a randomized control trial and really think through all the different stages to test for causality. Um, and the, the very high bar that, you know, you've got to pass for an academic publication as far as, you know, what, what really is proof, um, you know, was also quite challenging. So I think uh, that was a grueling academic experience. So those two things jumped to mind as two quite distinct academic challenges, you know, one in sort of the uh, public policy education science realm, the other in the stats realm. 
that I found to be, you know, a, a big learning curve. Jamie, thank you for that. Um, I, the, there are a couple of questions I, I, I sort of want to ask on on that basis. Um, uh, I'm going to get a little family family oriented here because you know I'm 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 thinking about my mum right now. She's in hospital. She's almost ninety. She's the one who imbued that amazing love of education in me and of the notion that education can make a difference in the lives of people than, and and that it's intrinsically important. You know, you look at you look at her family. They came to Australia with absolutely nothing, and 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 if if our families made anything of themselves, it's through our education. You mentioned within the education experience there the word pain. It's an interesting it's an interesting concept. Our research globally around the development of character and competency and wellness in learners, which is the, the the fundamental building blocks of whether or not learners are going to thrive in the world, and it feeds into their adaptive expertise, their self-efficacy, and so on. Is that there seems to be a special place for conditions of adversity personal challenge, collective challenge, and even pain in the development of character. I mean, yes, you can learn character and you do learn character, of course, in times of joy and celebration and satisfaction and downtime and so on and so on, but there's a particular place for adversity in there. How have you managed adversity and challenge in your own educational career? I guess there are two types of adversity I can think of. The first is the adversity that comes from having an intellectual challenge you can't seem to you know, overcome, um, a very difficult concept, not unlike the examples I was giving you in stats previously. And the second is, you know, I guess, personal adversity, one you might experience in your general life beyond that of sort of the learning process. So I guess um, uh, generally how I handle adversity and intellectual adversity is, uh, you know, for the most part, most content you go through in your undergrad and even graduate school, probably even into your PhD level, there are people out there at your university or your school that are going to have more knowledge than you. And you should be really open to asking and, you know, really open to uh, getting that insight. I have friends who are super smart, but they are almost terrified of asking for help from teachers or other stakeholders. They try to solve every problem themselves. And the most effective learners, you know, shortcut those roadblocks by building a network of academics around them um, to bounce ideas off, you know, go to when they've got challenges and solve those problems really as a team. I think about examples in this class called Econ 1011A from a Harvard professor called Edward Glazier that's famous because I guess Bill Gates and Steve Barmer took this class and did very well in it. It's a very hard economics class. And I'd often look at the problem set for this class at like, you know, uh, 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. and be totally stumped as to how you tackle the problem. And then I would meet up with my classmates at I don't know, 9, 10 p.m. and would be feverishly working away into the early hours of the morning. Um, and, you know, by 2, 3 a.m., uh, at the beginning, none of us knew how to solve these problems, but after hours of, you know, battling through this together, um, we would, you know, have a, an idea or an epiphany that would help to tackle the problem. And so at the beginning, I thought this was just good luck, but then time and time again, you know, we'd all have sort of no idea. And then we would, um, you know, throw ideas around and get to a conclusion. So I, I think, uh, the first way to handle that bucket of adversity, uh, is, is, you know, the idea of building this network of support around you. That's how I handle academic adversity in general, as far as personal adversity, I think it's very, I think it's, you know, a different kettle of fish um, in some ways, but the solution is quite similar um, in that you need to have that support system around you, you know, family, friends, relationships, colleagues, peers uh, that you have sufficient trust with that you can be vulnerable to when things aren't going well. And I think that's, that's important to really get right because there are many powerful relationships in your life where, you know, appearing vulnerable to them is uh, scary. It can even actually remove opportunity. So, you know, you might have a professor you're trying to appear really sharp for, 
because if you seem, you know, like you don't really get something, they might like overlook you for an important, you know, piece of work or something. So you definitely need to have relationships in your life where you can be totally vulnerable with. And if you're if you're stuck, um, you can share that. Um, and you know, personal challenges, family challenges, relationship challenges, whatever can be shared with those kind of relationships. So I, I think that would be kind of how I tackle those two different buckets in my life so far. And you know, I'm I'm always working on it, but. I found that, you know, a close-knit network that you can go to on a wide variety of issues is key to success and being open to admitting, you know, you've got no idea. And there's that interdependence that's coming out, that sort of 21st century fluency in building relationships and networks as, as, uh, as a key to solving problems. It's interesting hearing you talk about adversity in that way where you start with intellectual adversity, but then along the way you've mentioned this physical adversity, you know, staying up all night till we crack the problem. And then for a lot of people, of course, then there's, there's the emotional challenge of actually connecting with people and allowing themselves to feel vulnerable as a way forward. It's, you know, that's that Brene Brown stuff of, you know, leaning in rather than, you know, standing back, I guess. Um, I know that debates... Debating is really important to you and your background. And, and again, I want to follow the family theme here and shout out Oliver Cummins, our producer, recent winner of the Martin Sorensen Trophy at the Australasian Intervarsity Debating Championships as our region premier university debater. Why is co-curricular, why is debate, why is the non-academic field so important for the development of the whole person? I think the reality is there are very few problems in which academics alone get the job done. Normally, you know, almost every problem involves many stakeholders and there's many interpersonal dynamics that are required to kind of you know uh, advance something so entrepreneurship is a very good example you, you need to have a good idea a good insight about a problem that the market hasn't solved yet but you also need to be able to inspire folks understand what makes them motivated understand how to bring a team together of different strengths weaknesses when things aren't going well you know rally the troops etc so i think uh there are many roles for which you know, interpersonal skills are just critical for success. And the classroom is really good at training you in certain things, but some of these skills, it really doesn't train you in, in general that well. But activities like debate or model United Nations, which require you to, you know, broadly apply knowledge, experience people that totally oppose your idea, you know, structurally because of how debates, are, you know, are, are designed. Um, and, uh, you know, the pressure that comes from having to, you know, act on the fly in unfamiliar environments, um, articulate what you believe in, all these skills come up again and again and again uh, later on in life. So I think um, the importance of extracurriculars is that they you know, often are a pretty authentic representation for environments, feelings, encounters you might have later on. And so it's good to get that muscle memory you know, early. Right before this podcast, I was leaving a call from our academic team at our Crimson Global Academy. And we had a debate between folks in our growth team, folks in our academic team around certain decisions. And um, you know, uh, I guess that's an environment where I could do all the studies, all the degrees I want, but it's not going to help me, you know, in that environment. You know, the, the experience of being in a negotiation simulation or a debate class in Model UN is far more relevant. I think that would be uh, why it's so powerful. The other kind of just pragmatic point I'll make is that if you want to get into these global universities like a Harvard or a Yale, they just explicitly value extracurriculars, you know, on, on the profile. So, you know, you, you really have to do them and build out a strong profile if you want to be competitive. So I guess um, there's the grand purpose as well as sort of the practical application purpose as well um, for the high schoolers listening to this. Yeah, I love, love hearing you talk about that purpose-driven stuff. And our listeners will know, of course, this is stuff that I could rant about all day. Um, we're going to come to talk about Crimson Education and Crimson Global Academy shortly. And I'm, Adriano's got some, some questions he's going to sort of um, ask you in, in that respect. But just keeping it more general, 
at the moment and, and, and allowing that amazing mind of yours to sort of synthesise a whole lot of stuff. We've talked about times of challenge and times of adversity. We've talked about the whole of learning and the importance of the whole of learning. We're living through one of these times at the moment. And, uh, you know, this, this pandemic is teaching us that is that without technology, schools are going to make themselves irrelevant. It's an industry that by and large has resisted the use of digital technology in as many, many ways as has, has had to be dragged kicking and screaming towards the notion that education is not just about a person, an older person standing in front of a younger a group of younger people holding a book or holding a piece of chalk. In education, we believe that we've got a responsibility to lay the foundations for innovation within the soul of our learners and, and to help them grow into tomorrow and that there's an interdependence between technical and human and digital skills that's critical in this realisation. How can we better support schools and education systems more generally to learn how to embrace and use pedagogy with technology that will actually enhance learning? So I think, you know, the first insight that I would comment on here is that in education, there's a huge degree of respect for, you know, age, years of experience, qualifications, you know, credentials, etc. But in my experience, some of the most powerful conversations happen on a peer-to-peer basis. So, for example, coming back to my own, I guess, you know, heritage story, when I met that guy, Ben Kornfeld, who was ducks of my school, got into Yale, and he told me, you should think about applying globally. And because I respected him so much, and he was only a couple of years older than me, he was very relatable to me. He understood my position. He had a lot of information on what I was going through. He made that recommendation, and that really inspired me to, you know, to push. And I had many inspirational teachers, but they didn't quite have the same context that Ben had in my life. So I think the first thing that probably needs to change is this idea that a physical teacher who's often, you know, physical in terms of the real world in front of you, um, you know, old and experienced is, is really the only way learning can be delivered. I think many of the most innovative learning models combine the experienced educator with a younger teaching assistant who recently went through the exam, recently went through the qualification, knows it inside and out, and can answer many of these different problems. Um, so I think, I think that's an important uh, kind of assumption to challenge. Secondly, around delivery, I, I think that there's, almost no difference between a synchronous live class on a platform like Zoom and a physical classroom in which a teacher is standing in front of a bunch of students, except maybe the online classroom has a lot more tracking capabilities. I think there are plenty of valuable aspects of physical you know, realms, but I think the you know, huge growth in platforms like TikTok, social media in general, you know, online dating, online gaming, all these things point to a, you know, I guess a, a lack of tethering to the physical world that is you know, growing in prominence across all areas of, of the economy. And so in, in schooling, there are many, many constraints that if you are biblically attached to your physical school, um, you know, you'll just miss uh, as a school operator. So I think the future of learning is clearly a blended environment in which students are mixing between physical experiences, online experiences. The share of online experiences will keep growing for a long time because it's starting from a low base. And I think that will profoundly disrupt, you know, the current status quo players and, um, you know, the types of organizations that thrive, the types of leaders that will be, you know, in power in, in a couple of years in these institutions as well. So I think, I guess the second broad point is, you know, I, I don't think the world will be purely online, but I think a, a blended world is, is very powerful for, you know, for some of the reasons I described. What you've demonstrated there is that, you know, the, the world at the moment is going through enormous change and enormous challenge. And, and for some, it's overwhelming. Uh, and for others, it's exhilarating and terribly exciting. And we recognise that this, that also the world of work, for instance, is evolving at such a rapid pace. You know, I mean, especially through the swift advancements in, in technology automation and, of course, the introduction of artificial intelligence uh, across the board. How do you think that we can better engage school leaders and systems in education 
that we now need a new social contract for schools and for education? I think the way that is done is, I think sort of the market mechanism of entrepreneurship and, and, ed, and ed tech can bring a lot of, I guess, the necessary disruption pretty quickly. And the way this kind of works is, you know, uh, in New Zealand, when we started, for example, our online high school, you know, a lot of the physical school leaders thought this is nuts, it's not going to work. And then, you know, uh, we do our work, we ignore them a little bit, we get our licenses, we begin rolling, we start serving students, we see some academic grades, and then some schools start paying attention. One school wants to partner with us to bring psychology to their classroom. Another school wants to partner with us to bring computer science to the classroom. Then our exam results come out. We get really strong exam results. And then more educators are paying attention. So I think, um, uh, you know, the idea of being conservative and wanting to see results first is very reasonable. And many educators, you know, take that perspective. And I think that's totally fine. I think what's important is that, you know, when the results start arriving and, and the results won't arrive in some places, some ventures will not work. You, you, you need to be open-minded to, you know, what's working and, and particularly what students and parents are finding valuable and then respond accordingly. And so I think um, there's a difference between the educator who's conservative and relatively convinced in their current set of beliefs uh, around how things should work and the educator who's totally closed off to anything other than the status quo right now that, that they do. And I think a lot of educators, uh, I mean, there's plenty in both camps, but, you know, I'm optimistic about global education because, you know, I think the typical educator wants what's best for the student and is open-minded, but with a bit of conservatism, but is willing to embrace things. And that's kind of what I've seen and, you know, been really, I guess, proud of with many of the educators in New Zealand and how they've engaged with, you know, online learning during COVID. Um, so I think encouraging that culture is, is very important. The other thing is, you know, probably um, a strong embrace from public policymakers, academics, et cetera, around this. Um, it really helps when strong, you know, evidence comes out validating, you know, certain methodologies. One good example is the classic, um, you know, Chicago paper from Professor Bloom, which talks about, you know, two sigma learning and really the impact of one-on-one -on -one learning or personalized learning on student outcomes. Um, you know, for a while, plenty of educators just believed the group class was just the way to go. Mm -hmm. And this piece of research really authoritatively validated that one-on-one -on -one delivery, you know, can really accelerate outcomes. So, you know, landmark pieces of innovation like that or profound innovation in terms of companies that are, you know, disrupting different ed tech opportunities um, are good ways to make people pay attention. And I guess um, to some degree, policymakers, you know, are usually pretty slow to react to these things, but obviously during COVID, they've been forced to start paying attention to some of these innovations. And that's a bit lagged, but, um, you know, I guess ultimately follows the other things that I just described. Just a, a moment ago, you were talking about an offline and an online kind of delivery model. And, and you, you kind of suggested that there's not a hell of a lot different between, between the two, apart from the online having a capacity to perhaps track things uh, a little bit more successfully. What's interesting in that response for me is that I probably would challenge that a little bit and, and, and say that what you just shared there about personalization and, and the evidence that's, that's becoming more and more apparent uh, through research, uh, like the paper you just cited, is that in our experience in the last two years in, in Victoria, where we, where we were doing a, a kind of continuous learning delivery model in an in in a online setting for nearly 200 and something consecutive days over the, the two years, was that we saw a great advantage of the online in support of personalization. And, and better catering for the individual because there were things that we were learning about these individuals that we hadn't discovered beforehand, you know, particularly around welfare type issues um, because there, there were these, there was a, a consciousness about checking in more frequently 
about how people's emotional state was and their emotional competency was. And of course, that schools were discovering so much more about the young people in the care. They're also discovering a lot about their staff too and their, their staff's bandwidth and capacity uh, in, in moments of crisis like that because staff, of course, you know, they were, they were grappling with their own families, you know, uh, and their own circumstance that were going on, you know, in, in that home context. That's why I want to come now to Crimson Global Academy, which, which you launched in 2020. And it's this world-class private online high school uh, now working over with over, you know, I think 550 students, you probably even have more than that, um, and, you know, across 27 countries. How much of that delivery model and paradigm is now going to be the future of schooling? So at Crimson Global Academy, uh, we offer both part-time and full-time. And the part-time learners are really learning in the environment that you and I have just described, where there's a physical school the student's going to from nine to three. But then they use Crimson Global Academy to tap into extra qualifications. Some classic example would be the physical school doesn't offer accelerated math options or the kid is restricted to go through school based on his age at that physical school. They hop into Crimson Global Academy and suddenly they can do some international qualifications um, that are more advanced in math, keep them really challenged. Or for example, take a class their school doesn't offer like law or psychology. So uh, that is the dominant delivery format. And I think um, you know, that is an example of you know, a part of what the future looks like where you have physical schools that are happily embracing plenty of different online offerings, short courses, longer courses, and also, you know, global communities for certain, say, extracurriculars. So, for example, in our online high school, we have an investing club where there's a former hedge fund analyst that teaches different investing techniques to kids in high school. And these kids are from all over the world. And, you know, normally physical high schools uh, don't have any capabilities to deliver something like this. But there are many high schools that want to learn how investing works and they want to learn how to invest their money and stuff. Um, they're reading about crypto and, you know, in the, in the headlines and wanting to know how the stock market works. And this becomes very interesting. So I think the future of, uh, you know, physical schools, um, uh, I mean, the future of schooling will be blended and, and it will use things like, for example, CGA part-time with physical schools and many other partners as well. Things like Coursera has a lot to offer and certain credentials as well. But I think full-times also, I wouldn't underestimate the scale that full-time online high school will, will become. Um, I'm surprised actually by the rate of adoption. I think we're almost at 750 students now in our school. And we've seen um, a lot of kids joining us full-time in New Zealand and Australia, actually leaving some of the top high schools in, in these cities to come choose uh, to learn with Crimson. And I think a lot of those students are really confident. They're actually getting enough of a physical experience through their extracurriculars, through their sports, that actually for their learning, um, they want to have these high-intensity classes, world-class curriculum. They want to actually make the entire academic experience as efficient as possible. So rather than having, you know, most of their subjects at normal class speed in a normal physical school and coming to CGA for one or two subjects, they'll come to us to really accelerate the entire thing for those you know, later years. So I don't think full-time online will be sort of the dominant modality for the world, but I think um, part-time uh, online with some physical delivery will be very, very common. And then you'll definitely have this growing contingent of families that are happy to selectively embrace full-time online. It's really interesting what you're sharing because at, at, at the very top of the show, when Phil was asking you some questions about the role of what's traditionally been called co-curricular uh, opportunities. You, you spoke uh, so positively about how that impacts the whole of learning experience and, and, and your, your entire development. It struck me as I was listening to your response that should a young person decide and their family decide that the conventional school setting is no longer serving them well, that they take on an enrolment in, in an organisation like Crimson Global Academy, and they undertake their various studies that they enjoy. But at the same time, 
they're now increasing their involvement in their local community around their sport, around their arts, around all these other things that go on. And I wonder, I wonder if, if the rise of online learning could have the capacity to encourage people to have greater connectedness to their local community because they need to have a fix of that connectedness, that relationship formation, you know, that character apprenticeship in, in, in some other way that's in, in a more kind of physical space. It's just a wondering that I have. What's also struck me about what you shared was the power of it increasing accessibility to people who ordinarily wouldn't have access to those opportunities. You know, because I think that's what you illustrated beautifully. So many, so many schools can't offer necessarily a broad suite of things, but they might have a number of individuals who are keen to do something, but it's only offered in a particular part of the world or, or it's only offered at a specialist school or it's only offered in another part of the country. But technology has the capacity to be a leveller, providing we have access to that technology. So this, I've got two questions for you, one about equity and one about the digital divide. So I'll start with the digital divide. How do we go about, solving that because that what what the pandemic has shown us is that the, the digital divide and access not only to to the to the technology but also the bandwidth has been a real issue when there was over 1.6 billion young people no longer attending a physical school environment and many of those kids are in developing countries even in australia in remote areas and rural areas didn't have access to the hardware the software and the bandwidth to be able to remain connected to their learning. How can we overcome that as a society and ensure a greater level playing field when it comes to digital uh, technology? I think on this issue, you know, there are a couple of problems that are so large in scale and require so much capital funding that there are only a certain number of people that can actually, you know, build the solution. And I think when it comes to basically internet infrastructure, uh, normally, you know, the government needs to step in uh, or you know these large typically it can't even be large internet companies because they can't they can't justifiably build like you know rural internet offerings without you know government subsidies because it might not make sense so you often need the government to sort of step in and commit to a certain level of access to you know broadband kind of as like a universal right I think when it comes to the internet I mean the internet brings such insane levels of joy and happiness to many you know Netflix whatever YouTube as well as all these learning opportunities that are basically unlimited like unlimited once you open your laptop that you know, a government priority across the world should be this internet access. So I think in general, we have to elect politicians that, you know, recognize the importance of solving some of these problems. But then furthermore, uh, in some parts of the world, there's plenty of philanthropic dollars heading towards these challenges. Um, I think uh, an interesting example is some of the, um, you know, internet projects conducted by uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk, um, to think about, you know, uh, using um, satellites to get more internet access to parts of the world. A similar innovation, I think, has been attempted I believe at Facebook um, to bring internet to more of the developing world, although I believe they've stopped those plans recently. So I think we probably need to bet, I don't know, 70% on governments to get this done. And then, you know, we probably need some of these huge corporations that have a real incentive, either because they run the satellites or because they have, you know, social media tools and stuff that they want distributed to put in place more of this infrastructure around the world with a bit of a philanthropic push. I think, you know, realistically, there you can you can be worried about the digital divide, which is very, very valid. But I think about just divide and even in physical schools between the quality of, say, the 90th percentile school or the 99th percentile school and the 50th percentile school. And so if you kind of don't pull the trigger on some of these online innovations because you're worried about this digital divide, you know, kind of overlooking the much bigger problem, which is that school quality is so um, heterogeneous. It varies so much from place to place. And that is a big opportunity to solve while we're kind of solving the, the internet issues. You know, I'm pretty confident over time 
internet access will become pretty, I guess, essential ar around the world and, um, you know, pretty mainstream. And, you know, that's really the way things are trending. So that, that's the first point I'd make on the digital divide, a very valid problem, a serious problem, but also, you know, one that I think pretty large institutions need to step up and solve. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't get in the way of innovation because that is currently existing. Uh, oh, the other point I'd make is that, you know, innovation around, you know, bandwidth is also rapidly improving. So Zoom is a good example. Zoom actually, you know, hoovers up far less bandwidth from my understanding of the technology than yeah. platforms like Skype used to, which means you can have much worse internet and still have a really good quality call, especially if you turn off your, your video camera. And that opens up a lot of opportunities as well. So I think, um, fortunately, you know, also innovation is meaning the bar in terms of internet, you know, bandwidth is hopefully dropping in some parts of the world. Crimson Education was founded with this kind of vision to equalise the university admissions playing field in many ways, you know, serving as a kind of launching pad that, that equips students across the globe to overcome barriers of geography and legacy to compete on the world stage. So I suppose my question to you is, why is a commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion in our universities important to you? Well, I'll give you a, a, you know, a simple example of this. If you think about a university like Harvard today, they have policies in place like legacy admissions, which mean that if you've already attended the school, it makes it a bit easy to get in you know, for children of these families. But the problem is, you know, historically, a lot of these alumni come from white affluent backgrounds in general at a you know, different time. And there's a lot of privilege attached to you know, people who attended these schools 40, 50 years ago. So things like legacy are really, um, you know, anti-diversity and inclusion, you know, anti-inclusion, anti, you know, I guess, equity in many ways, uh, broadly. Um, and, uh, you know, policies like this probably have to be, you know, overturned. I think where, you know, DNI shows its real strength is that on the flip side, some of these innovative universities like Harvard and Stanford, they have really hundreds of millions of dollars of financial aid to mean that wherever you are in the world, um, if you apply, uh, these admissions officers will look at you in the context of the background you've overcome, your challenges, ethnicity, et cetera, and they will admit you, um, you know, based on that context. So one of our students, for example, Sam Taylor, a Maori boy from Mount Maunganui, who's one of the first ever Maori students from New Zealand to head to Harvard on a full scholarship. He's going to Harvard for a lower price than, for example, the University of Auckland. And you know, his goal is to be the first Maori prime minister of New Zealand. So a student like that, you know, Harvard actually has this huge amount of funding to actually open up their doors. And when they assess him, you know, they're really thinking not only about his academics, but also the relative adversity he's faced compared to other folks from more privileged backgrounds. And they can make that admissions decision, you know, calling that into action. So my optimism about these institutions is, is they are obsessed with as they're, they're as obsessed with the importance of DNI as anybody else, if not more. They're also places that are bastions of privilege, but they're really actively working to solve some of these issues as well as well as they could, while also you know um, recognizing some of these constraints. So in this regard, I'm very optimistic about this trend because over time these top universities are getting more and more and more funding to you know provide scholarships to students from all over the world. They're prioritizing you know admissions from different you know ethnic backgrounds, countries of origin, etc. And they're also offering you know uh, more affordable tuition options online, etc. As well, um, and all of that I guess bodes well for this. I think Crimson Global Academy is another example of you know something that has really a, a path to play. And we've given over a million dollars so far in um, scholarships to our school away to families who uh, didn't possess the financial uh, you know, ability to pay, but really had the academic talent to contribute to the school enormously. And um, you know, I think it's important that you know, ed tech organizations really take responsibility for creating equity rather than creating inequality um, in, in what they do. So uh, that'd be a kind of couple of very practical examples that, that, that I, I think of. This is definitely something where as the entrepreneur, you can't just assume what you're doing is you know, net beneficial for society. You really have to actively work to take responsibility for you know, your impact across 
different you know folks in society and different you know backgrounds and stuff um and, and that's something we, we really focus on a lot at crimson really interesting to think about um the nature of equity in that respect really i think it's you know, four generations ago people from both my mother's and my father's side of the family wouldn't have got into any elite institution of any sort and just weren't allowed that sort of thing now the opportunities are there background is one way to look at it there are also other ways to look at equity as well too and to say how do we create more opportunities for people who don't meet the criteria for Ivy League in terms of intellect or in terms of academic achievement and so on? So in other words, how do we broaden the pipeline to create quality experiences as a whole, which, which, which I think is all about competency. And I think it's all about the way in which schools prepare students to thrive in the world, regardless of the particular pathway that they're going to go down. Now, we've had since 2003 an increasing number of lists of global skills that students need to thrive and um, these are regularly updated and you know they go into a league list a competitive league list of things that are most desirable this year compared to last year etc 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 if i ask you to boil it down to three three competencies or three global skills that every student needs to thrive in the world right now not just the ones aiming for harvard but every student needs what are those three skills jamie I think the first is um, some quantitative ability, some mathematical ability, and this is you know controversial to say because you know not, not every student likes math. A lot of students don't uh, uh, don't. But I think the reality is almost every area of society is being consumed by you know data by technology. I'll give you a simple example: marketing. You know, twenty years ago, marketing used to be uh, creative campaigns, you know, big billboards, TV, whatever. These days, uh, many of the most senior marketers are very quantitative. They are obsessed over return on advertising spend data, digital marketing campaigns, multi-touch attribution models, all kinds of stuff. Um, I've got a, a student of mine who works for Uber uh, and they're a product, it's a product marketer, product manager, but in the marketing team. And they use machine learning algorithms to tune, you know, who they send vouchers to, who they send discounts to on their app to get you to keep, you know, reordering with them. So marketing has transformed from being something that previously, you know, you would do if you didn't particularly love math, um, but you had strengths in other areas. But I guess over time, you know, that strength in math is really becoming quite a fundamental skill. So I think the first thing is I, I really encourage students to persist with math and at least get to a pretty strong area where they don't view it as something so intimidating and scary, um, or at least they, you know, persevere through to probably at least the end of high school, because I, I think that is very useful. And Jamie, I if I can just different. if I can just jump in there for a moment, I'm just I'm sitting there and thinking about that 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 capacity at maths and, and a former game changer guest. Um, Conrad Wolfram, he would say that the key to that is making sure that we're actually teaching kids the right maths and that we need to be engaging kids in computation and, problem, and genuine problem solving rather than just doing stuff that calculators can already do. Anyway, that's just a by the by. Keep going, please. Yeah, fascinating. I, I think I think that's that's actually very true. Now, the second thing is taking a, a bold departure from math um, to, you know, really, uh, I guess, English, uh, particularly the ability to, you know, uh, assess evidence and texts and interpret them effectively and then secondly to articulate yourself through a persuasive uh you know article persuasive essay so i guess uh broadly speaking you know the argument here is whatever you do in life you're going to need to be able to advocate for yourself you're going to be able to assess ambiguous situations and interpret them you're going to need some eq skills to figure out how people are feeling and you know uh i guess how to you know best handle a new environment now english is not a perfect proxy for all of this stuff but I think, firstly, you know, being able to analyze literature and interpret personalities, contexts, meanings, subtexts, uh, you know, major themes, all of this is, is very valuable. 
And the second is around, you know, those persuasive skills. You're going to always have to argue for yourself, uh, for opinions you have. You're going to be able to assess debates, make decisions. And even if those arguments just happen in your mind, um, but you have to make a decision, you know, quite analytically, those skills are very valuable. So I think basically you need to have that foundation in English. That would be probably skill number two. Um, so I guess number, number one skill is math. Number, one, number two skill is English. And I'm really a big advocate of trying to get those both to a pretty high level by the end of high school. Um, even if you plan to veer off into a track that will only use one of those skills primarily, you'll still never be able to escape them. So those two things I think are very important. Is it the subject or is it really the skill? Because I mean, I'm, what I'm hearing come through really clear here is maths has a capacity to support me in, my, in, in, in developing a skill set around problem solving, a- analytics uh, and, and analysis. And I'm hearing that English has a capacity to help me better understand knowledge, interpret it, uh, the, the power of language and word, and then, and then tap into the skill of communication skills so that I can enter into a world uh, and have a, a discourse and a dialogue with others. So is it is it less about the subject per se, but more about the skills that they can actually enlighten inside and, yeah, and, and awaken in, yeah, in people? Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely, Adriana, because what I'm hearing is you, you, your answer saying, Jamie, you start with a subject here, but with, you know, the, the, the first one you're talking to is fundamentally is about analysis, really, mm. um, and computation's in there somewhere as well too. But then you're talking to us about persuasion. So, yeah, is it, do you think it's the subject or the skill? Or yeah, do you want no, to tell I, us your I, third I, skill I think, first and then answer the, answer no, the I, question? I think, I think it's, it's, to, it's totally a skill. You're right. The way I, the why, why I say English is that, practically speaking, in high school, the way you typically encounter this is through English or history or right. social studies, something like this. And uh, it tends to be the case that if you have this allergic response to English and you don't want to do it, you know, you don't typically go deeper into like art history or psychology or classics. And so, you know, you might not really delve into those areas in general. So normally, in my experience, the path through to those skills is really through English and then through other activities. Now, I don't mind if you go and become really good at classics because you're going to learn the same skills probably um, in, in many ways or even art history. But, but I think, you know, uh, a subject that gives you those skills is, is pretty essential to persevere through. And you often think that, for example, math is something that's really, you know, these foundations you've got to build through, you know, you've got to learn these formulas, et cetera. But I, I think for English... Um, you can actually have quite a mechanical approach to learning how to analyze texts and analyzing, you know, themes and analyzing language techniques as well. And so um, I think a lot of students sort of give up for they've mastered those things, but, you know, there's a real need to persevere. So I think, I think they're the first two skills. And then skill number three is broadly, you know, how you learn. Um, I think there are a lot of people I, I meet who never really quite mastered how to study. They never really quite mastered how they learn, how to, you know, absorb new material. And that's a real issue because, as you go through life or university, you know, your career, there's all these topics you've got to, you know, hoover up and figure out. Uh, it might be how to use Excel to solve a problem in your work. It might be how to use Python to run a statistical question. It might be, you know, uh, how to um, uh, approach uh, like media and PR and press releases, whatever. And you need to figure out how to learn this material um, and, you know, how you, how you best soak up that knowledge. And everyone's a little bit different, but I think the best students I come across over the course of 13 years of high school or, you know, primary intermediate high school have, you know, tuned that learning process. So it's like a muscle, which they can just exercise uh, and, you know, it's built in them for life. And I think um, those who don't have that, you know, really are allergic to the idea of more degrees, more study, you know, uh, and they really want to run from anything that resembles, you know, school again. Um, And so I think that third skill is really how to learn and how to learn personal to you. So that would be my three, I guess, uh, key things. I think you need to leave school equipped with to succeed. So analysis, persuasion, and I guess you could call it metacognition. 
Although every time I hear the every time I hear the word metacognition, I, I think of our tendency to go way towards um, uh, jargon more than uh, anything else. So, so how do we analyse things? How do how do we persuade people? And how how do we learn about learning? And how do we learn about ourselves? And how do we learn about the world? If those are the skills that you think young people need today, how are we going to help schools focus in on those things? Because traditional school is not about analysis. It's about memorization and recall. It's not about persuasion. It's about description. It's not about metacognition. Uh, you know, it's not about learning how to learn. It's learning about how to play the game of school, which is slightly different because that's learning, that's learning how to win within a, a closed, you know, closed loop environment. How do we shift thinking in schools from the type of skills that led to success, you know, in a former era to the type of skills that are going to help all students thrive today? I think that's uh, a great question. And my approach to solving that is often very tied to the individual student and also pretty pragmatic. But I'll give you some examples of, you know, how I would do this. I think the first thing you've got to do is you need to introduce a young person to a, you know, mentor or somebody, you know, they deem inspirational that can advocate for these, you know, three things um, practically through how they've done this. So again, when I saw this guy, Ben Kornfeld, he was a debating champion. He loved math and he was always challenging himself to learn new subjects. So I thought, well, these are great things to develop in myself. So I think, first of all, you know, you need to have an education system that has enough of that inspirational flavor that is that goes beyond the books, goes beyond the exams and connects on a really human level um, and makes you, you know, motivated to want to give it a go. I think, I think that's the first thing. Secondly, um, I think when you learn mathematics very abstractly and you don't understand how it plays a role in the future, you know, that can be a little bit dull. But for example, we had a bunch of kids uh, over the last little while doing virtual internships in high school with Uber, with PwC, with KPMG, with the hedge fund in Boston, Sumer doing one with HSBC. And these kids have to use math in a practical problem-solving way to tackle a real, a real you know, problem investing challenge or, or otherwise. And they're seeing how these skills are going to be used practically in, in, in the world in the future. And the kids leave with this kind of aha epiphany. That actually, wow, these skills that I'm working on probably play a significant role in the future. I should really hone them and tune them. And previously, they didn't have that context. They saw them through that very abstract kind of academic game that, you know, they really divorced from their future uh, in any kind of meaningful way. So I think you probably need to combine the traditional academic pursuits of learning math in school with some of these, you know, practical applications, whether it be, you know, global case competitions, whether it be, you know, virtual experiences with employers that use these skills, you know, whether it be, uh, I did this thing called the uh, New Zealand's Next Top Engineering Scientist, super fun, you know, practical problem solving challenge. When it comes to English, I think there are many ways to, you know, balance this. I think the student needs to A, go through school and learn their English, but also should be exposed to things like, you know, debating, model UN, you know, communication diplomas, um, you know, mock trial, uh, public speaking competitions. All of those things have to flex those skills as well. Um, and I guess the same thing is also true. You know, you need inspirational mentors that explain why these skills are valuable. And also, you know, you need quality teaching to make the path to learning these skills as painless as possible. Um, because I think, you know, when you've got a, a dull teacher teaching you English, it's like, a, it's like a double hit. Number one, if you're struggling with the concept, you know, it's, it's hard to keep persevering. And number two, if the teacher's not very inspirational, you know, you want to give up quickly. You don't have that accountable relationship to them. So uh, that would be kind of how I would approach problem one, problem two. Um, I think the question of, you know, how to learn um, is slightly more challenging to tackle, like, systematically. Um, I almost feel but, that you've answered it, though, Jamie, because it, in, in, this, in this response that you're sharing to Phil's question, 
is that there is this beautiful balance and a commitment to the knowledge and skill, which is the theory component, which we don't want to abandon because it has a place and it has enormous value. But what you're demonstrating through the examples of how to deliver the math and the English is about an in-context experience that's about a real-world authentic application. So we're going from we're going from theory of knowledge and skill to transfer to make meaning. And I feel that's the third component. I mean, if we think about metacognition and we think about how we learn, uh, th there's enormous value in the doing, in the actual applying this knowledge and skill and testing it in different contexts, a bit of trial and error. Uh, dare I say failure might come into it or mistakes will come into the play there. But I mean, you're a young, dynamic individual that has this huge appetite for learning and knowledge. But then you don't stop there. Your whole history so far has been then an application of that knowledge to advance others. I mean, the Global Academy, you know, the Crimson Education, all these have been a powerful vehicles that are an application of your knowledge and skill over a period of time that is now becoming transformational for others. So I almost kind of feel that your own journey is an example of that last skill component, but, but also what you've just explained there. What's also interesting in listening to you is a, a moment ago, I'm going to shift, shift tact here a little bit, mate, because I'm just conscious of time and we've just got a couple of quick, quick questions we want to get through uh, because we're really uh, interested in, in your perspective. This has been such an enlightening conversation. When I asked you that digital divide question, you, you touched upon the responsibility of industry and business and government. What that reminded me of was that I recently read the UNESCO's 2021 global report, Reimagining Our Futures Together, A New Social Contract for Education. And in it, it kind of called for us to have an educational kind of evolution, a new social contract that repairs past injustices while enhancing our collective capacity to act for a more sustainable and just future. And I mean, that's part of the aspiration of what you were sharing about the, the DEI kind of concept at the moment with the universities. One of the recommendations in the report was moving from thinking of education as mostly occurring in schools and in certain ages to exploring the opportunity that takes place throughout all aspects of their life and puts them in country, in context. How do you think we can better support school communities to continually look outward? and create learning partnerships with industry, with government, with, with community bodies that can provide for a more in-context or in-country learning experience where they're, they're taking that knowledge and skill of the theory and then applying it and transferring it? That's a great question. I think um, the first thing that I would say is it's important to distinguish, I think, you know, public schools uh, and private schools, the different incentives they have to sort of innovate, right? So in my experience so far, when I engage with say like a global private school chain, they're very focused on student outcomes. They're very focused on, uh, you know, improving the parent satisfaction, et cetera. And so they're very focused on anything they can do to bring into their school to boost those, those dynamics. I think when you speak to a lot of public school leaders, some of the pointy incentives to make those things happen aren't quite as strong because the students coming to their school are there because they live in that area. And, you know, uh, the rewards, if they do well or, or not, uh, probably doesn't, doesn't really actually affect them personally too much either. So what I've experienced is that um, their receptivity to kind of ideas uh, varies enormously. So normally what happens is you first go to these like private international school chains and they're, they're, they're like kind of like your early adopters. 
And then, you know, once you get some wins with them and, you know, you've got some trusted names around, you can roll to some of these other organizations and you have to start with the most innovative public schools led by very ambitious headmasters and they'll kind of lean in too. And then as you go down, um, you know, you will be able to persuade more folks. That's a hard incentive problem to solve. But I guess the way you probably um, uh, get through it is if you're a government, you could create a, you know, a voucher or, you know, incentive or, or budget for these, uh, for example, public schools to go towards, you know, online courses, online programs, online initiatives, or even offline ones too, that enable the, you know, school leaders to choose carefully what options they want to bring to their kids. And then by kind of putting that pool of resource in the hands of the public school leaders, you're, you're going to incentivize these entrepreneurial, you know, ed tech folks to go and innovate, then, you know, go ahead and provide the support to schools. So, you know, maybe you need a solution that straddles the public policy forum, you know, with uh, the natural incentives in, in the ed tech market to, you know, make change happen. I think the good thing is like currently, like that's kind of happening already. Um, there's already uh, this big growth in ed tech around the world. Um, there's a, you know, broadening in appetite from school leaders to embrace these tools. And, uh, you know, previously what was seen as like a graveyard of ed tech companies trying to, you know, work with schools, um, you know, a very difficult space to, to grow in. That's kind of changed. And there's been many success cases of companies that have, you know, built themselves working with schools and supporting them. So I guess the optimistic side of me says this is already kind of happening. So like you don't need to go crazy with incentives to sort of make this happen. But I, I do think, you know, it's, it's not easy. And, and it requires probably persistent entrepreneurs, then innovative school leaders who get recognition when they are innovative. And then, you know, incentive system that kind of rewards them. So that, that would be some of the thinking I have on this. But frankly, it's a, it's a big question. And I, I don't have many or all of the answers. So talking about rewards and recognition, in 2017, yourself and your Crimson co-founder, Chandra Kusho, were, were featured on the 2017 Forbes Asia 30 Under 30 list. Congratulations. What does this type of recognition mean to you and your mission? They don't mean all that much because I tend to define, you know, success as, you know, how many students I impact and then, you know, uh, how transformative the outcomes are for them. What these kind of things do do is they act as a signal to, you know, investors or potential staff that might join us that we're building something interesting, they should pay attention. And it might, you know, open a door, add some credibility that we didn't previously have. So for example, you know, when I was an 18-year-old kid from New Zealand, um, you know, it'd be super hard to walk into some of these investors' offices and get them to support me. After going to say Harvard or something and having that, you know, endorsement, uh, they would take me more seriously, take my meeting. Um, and then maybe I'd go to business school and they'd stop seeing me as a, you know, baby-faced kid a little bit and sort of assume that I could build like a company. So, Basically, uh, some of these different things just, you know, signaling credentials that add a bit of authentic, you know, a bit, a bit of authority to you that help you to kind of knock down some more doors and unlock some more resources to help you fuel, fuel that mission. Uh, so I think, you know, at worst, they're sort of like, you know, useless vanity. And then at best, they kind of help you to, um, uh, you know, open up some more resources to grow your organization. So I think, um, you know, whether it be something like that or um, something a bit more, you know, tangible, like a, um, you know, education award for certain student outcomes that are defined very objectively. Um, you know, these things can be kind of useful signals of success along the way, but, you know, ultimately I don't, I don't think that's what's important. Um, and, uh, you know, you definitely can't focus on those kind of things. I'm waiting for the 52 at 52 list because I might qualify for one of those lists at last. I think lists like that sound cute, you know, um, and, and I think the sort of stuff that you're engaged in is, it's not about being cute. You have you have very serious purpose and intent. What is your personal sense of the future? How do you see yourself evolving as a person and as an active citizen of, of New Zealand and of the world? That's a really interesting question. Um, Thank you. So when I 
<laughs> so when, when I when I first started in uh, this arena, um, you know, I began with college admissions guidance, a very practical, you know, uh, way of helping students that were ambitious get to a, a higher octane path for them that could unlock opportunities they didn't know they could access. I didn't have any education training beyond my love of learning as a student. What I've tried to do over the last seven years is really level up as an educator. I, I did my education master's degree at Stanford, and I just finished this PhD at uh, Oxford and what drives student outcomes and student satisfaction in online schooling. So I've really tried to evolve myself from somebody who sort of has a, you know, personal passion for education through my own studies to somebody who has, you know, some context for what's going on on the literature academically. So that was, kind of, I, I guess that was an important evolution. Uh, and I, I aim to continue to, you know, uh, level up my knowledge of, you know, what the cutting edge of education research shows, what the cutting edge of ed tech uh, is happening. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is really about Crimson's evolution and impact. We started off impacting, you know, ambitious kids applying to a very small number of universities um, at the pointy end of academics. And CGA really broadens our mission to be able to s serve a much broader range of students. I think about many of the families that are joining us in New Zealand that are coming from public schools we've never supported before, who've never actually spent a dollar on anything private school related at all. And they see CGA as a pathway to opportunity to get those international credentials and open up pathways for them. So the Crimson's natural broadening from something that was fairly elite and exclusive to something that is much more um, mainstream and accessible is very exciting and very motivating to me. And so I aim to continue to really push that forwards, you know, as, as quickly as possible. And, you know, currently we've got, you know, uh, 750 learners in our school, but, you know, we probably won't be resting until we have uh, tens of thousands, if not, if not more. And we really have built something of quite an institution, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, where I feel a lot of personal passion to make an impact. So I guess that that will keep me going for the next little while um, and, uh, you know, very hard to predict the future. But, you know, I tend to work in sort of one, two year sprints at a time. Yes. Well, we, we love the work that you're doing. We love the work that Crimson's doing. We're so glad that you're able to join us today for our little podcast. You make the improbable seem possible and desirable, Jamie. You bridge the gap between something that could be intimidating to something that's challenging, to something that's invigorating. Um, and uh, we wish you and your team very, very well. We're going to watch you uh, with interest and, uh, and hope to remain as conversation partners along the way because it's, it's people like you and teams like yours that are going to help us to meet the new social contract of education, which is today's learning for tomorrow's world. So bravo to you and thank you for being on Game Changers today. Thanks, guys. Super fun. Really appreciated it. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.